Well, we finish um, our series this morning looking at Christmas. We kind of started off, uh, you know, I guess it's the fourth week, so three weeks ago, looking at um, some, some unique angles as we consider Christmas. Of course, we, uh, in the first week, we considered the power of Christmas. Uh, then we looked at the promise of Christmas and then the joy of Christmas last week. And now we look at the reality of Christmas, the reality of Christmas, right? Because for Mary, as uh, it's outlined for her, she's given some insight from the Lord that she's going to bear a child, that this will be a special child uh, and has a particular role. And this child will be Christ the Lord. Uh, but we find that this is told to her. And as she goes to visit her cousin, uh, Elizabeth, uh, she gets a little bit of a uh, an affirmation of what the Lord is already doing, what he has done. As she shows up there with her cousin, there's uh, this kind of excitement from John the Baptist there that is within uh, Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth speaks there and, um, you know, is moved by the Holy Spirit to to tell her that she is the mother of her Lord, um, that she is uh, someone who is receiving these great promises from God. And, and what she says there in verse uh, 45 is, uh, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That the Lord told her something would happen, and that it would indeed come to pass. And, and this is something that Elizabeth uh, states as a foundational um, way that Mary ought to think about things. Because when you kind of get the news that you're having a baby, it's like a little bit like loose because you're just kind of like, I guess this is real, but it's not really real until uh, you're, you're, you're experiencing it uh, for the first time, until you are holding a child. And there, as uh, the Lord continues to give that, um, that word of what will happen to others, we looked in chapter 2 at the word given to the shepherds there, and they show up, uh, and we're told that they go and they see that the Lord has indeed kept his word. At that point, Mary had had the baby. And so she's like looking around, like what in the world is going on? All these people are showing up here to come and see this promised child. And we see uh, in verse 20, that they return glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, right? So they hear and see uh, uh, um, something, but they return glorifying God and praising him, right? As a result of something that they had seen and heard, Luke tells us, as it had been told to them. So they received a word that something should be a certain way, it should act in a certain way, it should be presented in a certain way, and they go to find out if it's true, and they indeed see that this is the case, that something is different, something has changed, a baby has been born. Because the reality of Christmas dawns on us when we now have to understand what do we then do with this new child right? Because what do you do after the, the day after your child is born, right? It's, it's the weirdest thing. All of a sudden, you, you know, you're, you're two people, and then all of a sudden, you're three people. And you're like, okay, like, now what? There's all this preparation up to that moment, but then you're like, okay, okay like, now what do we do? Because, like, we have, like, all the stuff. We have, like, mountains of, like, diapers, and we've got, like, a car seat, and we've got uh, all this, uh, and there's no, like, rules. There's no, like, 
book that's like, okay, here on this day you're supposed to do this. There's no instructions that come. But the birth of a child impacts everything. Everything. It impacts your schedule. It impacts how you plan your day. It impacts your sleep patterns, your tone, your communication, the food you eat, um, the way that you travel, uh, the way that you um, uh, plan and, and, and forecast. All of these things impact your life just with the entrance of a child. And the reality of Christmas is one that as the Christ child is born, this brings an impact to us all. Of course, if, the, if Christmas is filled with the power, the power of God to destroy the works of the devil, the power of God to uh, make man right with God, if it comes with the promise that we will be a part of his family, if it comes uh, as a, giving us this uh, indestructible joy, of course, these are going to be things that impact our life. There are implications for all who interact and come into contact with this child. And so as we look at Christmas, we want to see a couple things this morning. Of course, the, Christmas brings us uh, many realities, but I want to give you just a couple um, that we find here as the result, some implications of, uh, of Christmas. The reality first of a promise kept. The reality of a promise kept. As we saw here, that Mary was given a promise. She was told something is going to happen. And uh, her, her cousin Elizabeth says, Blessed uh, are, are you who, who believes the, the words that the Lord has spoken, that there would be a fulfillment, right, that we find in verse 45 there, of what was spoken to her from the Lord, that you trust that God will indeed keep his word. Now, Mary gets that promise, right? She gets the promise of something that will, will physically happen, something that will, will take place for her. She gets that. And there's a payoff that we see that happens. Jesus is actually born. And uh, there's, there's that payoff, and God, we see, is faithful to, to him, his word, and to do what he said he would do. And Mary receives that, and Elizabeth sees that, and uh, you know, all, everybody else sees that. They, oh yeah, we see that this has come to pass. But there's a greater promise that that exists within. And this is the promise that you and I bank on, that we need God to keep his word. Because all the way back in the beginning uh, of the scriptures, we find in the book of Genesis these words as he is dealing with the serpent, dealing with the enemy who has caused a break between man and God, who has put a huge problem of sin uh, into our lives that, that has separated us. And the, and the Lord speaks uh, to the serpent in uh, verse Genesis 3, 14, 15. Uh, he said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so what we find here is this, this first promise that God will indeed make things right. It is a, a, a proclamation. It's one of the first kind of um, declarations of the gospel coming forth that God will indeed uh, make things right, that the, the enemy has come in and tried to, to wreak havoc and, and has brought, uh, will bring a, a bit of a, a, a temporary wound. But ultimately, the serpent will be crushed. 
The promised one will crush the work of the devil. And what did we say was one of the promises? That, that, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil uh, and to cast him out and to defeat death. And so we find that one of the realities of Christmas is that God is keeping his promise, keeping this promise. And what happens at Christmas is the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise. Mary would have believed in this promise, along with all the other Jewish people. She would have believed in a promised deliverer. But now at Christmas, now at the birth of Christ, it becomes a reality. It becomes a promise kept. A promise that we can bank on. A promise that is kept when God keeps his word. And when he keeps his word... uh, It forces us to come to terms with the reality of the one who makes that promise, right? Because we see that promise made, we see it kept, and that gives us a certain level of confidence in the one who has made that promise. He is indeed truthful. He is indeed faithful. He is keeping his word. And when we see that, when we see that he keeps his word, it builds our faith, it gives us a track record of his faithfulness on which we trust. But it also, uh, whenever we see that there is a promise that is kept, it forces us to respond. We either say that he is faithful and true and has kept his word, or we can deny and say, well, that's not true. That's a lie. But the evidence says that he is faithful, that he has kept the promise. And so regardless, whenever God keeps a promise, whenever he does what he says he will do, it forces us to respond. You can't just be like, well, that was fine. You either believe that he kept his promise or you did not. It forces you to confront the fact of who he is. And in this case, we respond to the promise of of these claims that the one who made the promise makes. So he's sending forth his own son, he's promising to do this, and he's accomplishing it in a particular way. And if he is who he says he is, if he does indeed keep his promises, then this has a profound impact on our life in every way. We have to uh, now deal with the fact that there is a baby born, a child to respond to. And as we said, when there is a child, You have to reorganize and reorient your life all around that. And so in the same way, as Christ has come onto the scene, he says that you've got to lose your life for his sake. And you'll find it in him. This allows us to then say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to reorient my life, my purpose, my focus around you, around listening to you, around planning about how I can be near to you, how I can serve you, how I can follow you in every way. He makes these extraordinary promises, but he keeps them. He calls us to follow him, but we can trust him because he is a savior. He's the everlasting king. He's almighty God. And because he's kept his promises, because he has a track record of faithfulness, because he moved heaven and earth to come near to us in the person of Christ, we can trust him. The Bible tells us that he has made himself poor 
so that we might become rich through him. He demonstrated his love when we were sinners. He went willingly to the cross so that we might see his kindness and his faithfulness. And so the reality of Christmas is the reality of a promise kept. Second, we find quickly that the reality of Christmas is, brings us the reality of eternal life. At Christmas, we receive Jesus. At Christmas, we have this opportunity to hear uh, the announcement of the birth of the newborn king. The name of Christ proclaimed. The scriptures tell us throughout it again and again that he is called Emmanuel, God with us, or Jesus, God saves. You know, you have all these different ways that speaks about God's faithfulness, about what God has done, what he can do. And I think as, as you understand the claim, you realize that there is true life in him. Think about this. The prime, uh, the prime person who was like Jesus's best friend is the apostle John, right? He's kind of called the, the apostle who, whom Jesus loved, right? He's kind of the beloved one, right? So he's kind of like, he's kind of a part of this tight crew with Jesus, with Peter and James. Um, and, and, and there, he spends all this time with Jesus. And what what person in the scriptures speaks more about eternal life than John? He just, in, in all of his letters, in all of his writing, you read the Gospel of John, he's always talking about it. You read his, his uh, epistles, he's always talking about eternal life. And what does he say? He says consistently that it is found in Jesus. Now, this isn't just, um, this isn't just John making this claim himself. Jesus himself makes this claim multiple times. I'll give you just three passages here. First, um, two, two from Jesus and one from John. Uh, in John's gospel, though, we find Jesus speaking these words, and he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Right, so he's Clearly, they're speaking into uh, his death, that he is willing to be sacrificed, his body broken, as we often celebrate, uh, as we gather around communion. Jesus' own words saying that he himself, if you eat of his bread, you will live forever. Second, we find uh, Jesus saying these words in John 17, in his most intimate moment of prayer with the Father. In John 17, 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So he says, if you want to have eternal life, you've got to know God, and you've got to know me, because I and the Father are one, Jesus will go on to say. He's saying that we are indistinguishable, and if you want life, you've got to get Jesus. Right? This is why uh, we have returned to many times and have said again, um, you know, Jesus can make the claim, if you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. Because you're finding life in him. He, he is eternal life. Now, John writes uh, in his first epistle in chapter 5, uh, verse 11, uh, he says this, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
So the reality of Christmas is the reality of eternal life given for us. At Christmas, we get Jesus. And when you get Jesus, you get eternal life because he owns it. Remember we spoke about last week about how he defeated death? And when you go to death, he's just there? Just because he's life. He's the one who owns it. He owns the keys to life and death. And so as Christmas breaks in, as reality, the reality of Christmas dawns upon us, as we confront the fact that there is a newborn child, we've got to realize that this has implications for life. And not just life here and now, but for eternal life. A life that is filled with joy, as we discussed last week. There is that fullness of joy. Not just a temporary uh, happiness, not a, a circumstantial uh, emotion, but a deep and abiding joy, something that cannot be defeated. A deep satisfaction in Christ. Third, the reality of Christmas brings to us the reality of peace. The reality of peace. We read this prophecy in Micah chapter 5. Now muster your troops. O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days, right? So this is kind of where you, one of the spots where you kind of get this idea that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem in the city of David. But then you keep reading. Therefore, he shall uh, give them up until the time when she who is in labor has uh, given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So it's not just that he will be born there, but he's born to be our peace. The reality of Christmas brings us the reality of peace. Peace with God and man. Peace as he has made a way for us to relate to God in the best way possible as a mediator. The Apostle Paul puts it this way uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself, right, speaking of Christ there, he himself is our peace. He's drawing on this passage in Micah. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father." 
So, so the Apostle Paul breaks down this whole thing saying that Jesus is the way that we have peace. The reality of Christmas brings us the reality of peace that allows us to relate to God and to relate to man in this new way. That there is no hostility because we have a firm foundation in Christ. Because he has made us clean. He has washed us white as snow. We are not under the judgment of God when we trust in Christ for salvation. That we have a new way to live. A new way to reorient our lives. Fourth, the reality of Christmas brings us the reality of adoption. The reality of adoption. Not only is he the new child, but his work brings us into the family of God. Invites us into his family. Because Christmas is true, because Christmas is real, because it has come to pass, and because he has been faithful, and because God has kept his word, and because he has accomplished the work, this brings the opportunity for us to experience adoption. John 14, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, Jesus speaking, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you okay so that passage doesn't really talk about adoption there so look what's going on in that passage jesus is saying that he is going to give his spirit to people he says i'm going to ask god i'm going to ask the father to give you the spirit that you can have the world can't have it because it doesn't, it doesn't receive God. It doesn't receive uh, and trust in, in, in God. But you can have him because you do. And so the reality of this adoption begins with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm going to give this to you. But then he tells us uh, in John 14 that the, uh, here that the Father sends the Holy Spirit into the Christian. Now, the Spirit being in the Christian is there uh, indwelling the children of God, marking them. This is how Paul breaks it down for us and connects the dots in Galatians chapter 4. He says, And because you are our, our sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So he says, this is a marker that you belong to him, that his spirit is in you, that you're adopted into his family. And when you're adopted into his family, you are accepted by him. Paul continues in verse uh, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so we are adopted into his family through the work of of Christ. We have access now. We have favor now. We are able to have peace with God, not just as people who are marginally welcome in his house. We're not just these temporary visitors, but we have the status of family. We have the ability to speak to him whenever we want, to draw near to him, to experience his overwhelming love that he lavishes upon us so freely, so liberally. 
Finally, we finish with the reality of Christmas bringing us a future reality, the reality of his return. He promised that he would come this first time. Now we see a second promise being made, that he would again return and that we will see him once more. The reality of his return. After Jesus finishes the mission, after he accomplishes what he came for, you read this in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they had come together, this is all the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he tells them, like, like we, got, we got some work to do here. We're, we're, doing, this, we're doing something. Because uh, they're just like, are, are we done? Is this completely finished? Are you, like, here? Is this it? And he tells them, like, no, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, right? So he's like, you're, you're being adopted into the family as, as sons. You're giving all the rights and privileges and benefits and, like, just amazing things. And then he, and the, and then he finishes saying these things. And we're told in verse 9, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as they went, behold, uh, two men, who, these are angels here, stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up uh, from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So there's this statement here that they're witnessing this. They see him go up and these angels say he's going to come back in the same way that he left. His return will be similar to his ascension. So just as the people of old waited for the promised deliverer to come, and he came in the incarnation, so we wait for the return of Christ. The angels tell the disciples, he's going to come back in the same way that you saw him go up. He's going to... He's going to return uh, to this spot. We're going to, uh, he's going to return specifically, uh, the, the book of Zechariah tells us that he will touch down on the Mount of Olives in Zechariah 14, verse 4. Uh, and, and there's going to be some movement there in the earth. Then we're told he's going to return personally, invisibly. It's not just uh, that his spirit will be here and he will not return bodily, but he will visibly and, and personally, it will, be, it will be Jesus himself who will come back. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And so we find third, that he is going to return in great power and in glory. Jesus himself says these words in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will return. The return of Christ is something that is promised just as he came the first time, just as uh, the, the reality of Christmas brings the reality of a promise kept, again, we are told that he will return. Do you think he's going to keep his promise? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. He has family here. He's going to come and be with us and dwell with us. He will come. And what you believe about this newborn at Christmas shapes how you orient your life. What you believe about Jesus keeping his promises shapes how you're going to live his life. If you believe that he, will, he is indeed who he says he is, it's going to change how you plan, how you process, how you speak to one another, how you use your resources. Because you realize that these things actually belong to God. They're not yours. He's the king. And so through Christmas, there's a reality that brings, to a, brings us to recognizing his first coming, his first advent. But now, through Christmas, it reminds us that we await the return of the king. He will come again. We will see him again. We will be with him again. Right? And that's when we're going to get that payoff where we celebrate communion together each week. We look back on what has been accomplished, but we wait for the payoff of that promise where he said, I'm not going to partake of the fruit of the vine until we are together again. Like, we got a big feast coming. Like, there's some, like, really cool stuff that's, that's on the horizon. And so we've ought to live not just with um, the reality of this present world, but with the reality of Christmas in our hearts and the reality of the return of the king. Because he who promised is faithful and true, and he will indeed keep his word. And when you believe that, it changes how you do everything. It changes how you live, how you think, how you respond. And this morning we yield again to Jesus as our true and good king. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your kindness. We're grateful that you are so willing to give us your spirit to remind us that we are your children. That we belong to you. The world cannot receive your spirit, but we can. As you've adopted us into your family. And so we want to trust in you. We want to look to you and ask that you would be glorified in our lives and help us to reorient every part of us around you and who you are so that we might live in a way that brings you glory. And so, Lord, call us to respond now and give us that longing in our hearts for your return. We love you. Amen.